So let me start by uh, thanking you all for joining us for this podcast. My name is Dr. Alan Brown. I am a clinical associate professor of medicine at Loyola Stritch School of Medicine and chief of cardiology at Advocate Lutheran General Hospital, as well as a past president of the National Lipid Association. It's really my honor to have one of my close friends and uh, one of the top lipidologists in the universe, I think, to talk to us about a new therapeutic agent, Evanacumab. So with me today, I'm thrilled to have Dr. Robert Rosenson, who is the Systems Director of Metabolism for uh, Mount Sinai Health System, and also Professor of Medicine at Mount Sinai Icon School of Medicine. So Bob, thanks very much for uh, joining me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you for the invitation, Alan. So I think uh, many people now have heard of the branded version of Evanacumab that was recently approved by the FDA but probably very few of them really understand what the mechanism is and what the indications are. And I know you've done a lot of the basic research on this drug. So can you tell us a little bit about evanacumab? What's the mechanism of action and a little bit about the safety and outcome data that you've helped publish? Well, Alan, let's uh, step back and uh, talk uh, genetics before we talk mechanisms of action. We know that individuals who have a condition notice familial combined hypolipidemia have loss of function variants in angiopoietin-like 3 protein. And those individuals who are homozygote have lower levels of LDL cholesterol, triglycerides, and HDL cholesterol than the heterozygote. But even though the HDL cholesterol is lower in uh, patients with loss of function variants, the lifetime risk of coronary heart disease is also lower. So this is a target that's based in genetics. The mechanism of action of avinocumab is dual. Angiopoietin-like 3 downregulates lipoprotein lipase and downregulates endotheolipase. By using a monoclonal antibody, avanocumab binds to the angiopoietin-like 3 in the circulation. This is a hepatically synthesized protein. And by doing so, the activity of lipoprotein lipase increases. And so this class of medications was initially thought to be a very effective triglyceride-lowering class of medications, and it is. This has been shown not only with the human monoclonal antibodies, but also the small interfering RNA therapies. One of the aspects of evanocumab that's different than the small interfering RNA therapies is that it lowers LDL cholesterol by about 50%. And the mechanism involves endothelial lipase. How does endothelial lipase modify the VLDL particle resulting in a reduction in LDL cholesterol. Well, it turns out that in the liver, this remodeling of the phospholipids result in a smaller size VLDL particle that's more avidly cleared by hepatic uh, receptors. There is a decrease in ApoB production that seems to occur in some individuals, but it's mainly due to an increase in clearance by these hepatic receptors. So that's the mechanism for the LDL cholesterol lowering effect. And let me ask you more about that, Bob. That's fascinating. So what exactly is the role of endothelial lipase then in terms of lowering the LDL? So I, I get that the PTL3 within the liver would lead to lower ApoB and VLDL production. But where does the endothelial lipase come in? Does it remove significant amount of triglycerides from that smaller VLDL or what's the role there? Well, it's the intrahepatic remodeling of the VLDL particle that results in a smaller size particle that may result in some degradation within the liver, but also creating a VLDL particle that appears to be more avidly cleared by hepatic receptors. 
And these are receptors other than the LDL receptors. These are receptors for triglyceride-rich particles. Yes. Okay, that's that's fascinating. I always wondered how removing suppression of lipoprotein lipase is sort of what we think about HPTL3. And I think it has probably a lot of different effects, right, that are fairly complicated beyond just lipoprotein lipase suppression. But I always wondered how it got such a big LDL reduction. So that's that's fascinating. So I know that some of the preliminary studies and now uh, what's led to FDA indication were in patients with homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. And it would make sense, obviously, if they don't have functioning LDL receptors that you're reducing production by reducing VLDL production and increasing uptake by non-LDL receptor mechanisms to reduce LDL. Can you tell us a little bit more about the data in patients with homozygous FH? Yeah, certainly, Alan. So, you know, first we had a uh, paper that was the uh, world's largest experience of homozygous FH patients who were treated with PCSK9 inhibitors. And we know that individuals who have homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia may have some functioning LDL receptor activity, but there's others who have no functioning LDL receptor activity. And on average, PCSK9s lowered LDL cholesterol by about 32% to 33%. That's about half of what one expects in individuals with heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia or non-FH causing mutation form of hypercholesterolemia. So those individuals have an unmet need. There's extremely high rates of coronary heart disease. In the uh, follow-on study, individuals who completed what we call trial 1628 or the ELLIPS-HOFH trial were eligible for participation in another trial where they received intravenous Evanocumab, 15 milligram per kilogram every four weeks. And in that uh, study, in the double-blind treatment period, there was a 49% reduction in LDL cholesterol. And that's quite striking. Importantly in that trial, individuals who had LDL receptor activity less than 2% of normal, who also had loss of function variant, had equivalent reductions in LDL cholesterol. That's extremely important because those individuals are so challenging to treat and those are the ones who usually have the highest rates of coronary heart disease. Yeah, that's really fascinating and encouraging, right? We're talking about people with LDLs close to 500, and a 50% reduction is remarkable, probably better than we could do with apheresis, certainly over the long term, right? Have you guys looked at some of the patients who were on apheresis and were they able to come off when they got evanacumab? Right. So evanocumab worked regardless of the baseline lipids or LDL cholesterol-lowering treatments, including apheresis. But Alan, you're correct that individuals that were on apheresis were able to reduce the frequency of the apheresis procedures, and some were able to get off apheresis. So Bob, let's talk about the thing that obviously is on everyone's mind when a new drug comes out. You know, How is the tolerability, adverse events, and any kind of danger signals with the medication? So the medication was extremely safe and, you know, rarely there's treatment uh, emergent adverse events leading to discontinuation, isolated case of an allergic response, very short-lived that occurred, you know, in the uh, study. Yeah, well, that's certainly encouraging and a wonderful option for patients where we don't have a lot of options. I appreciate the good work you did in this area, Bob. I know that that's going to 
going to help a lot of patients. So I'm going to shift gears to, you know, another potential indication. And I know that what you can say is somewhat limited because I know you have an upcoming publication. And I, I just point out to the audience, I'm not privy to the results of that publication. I just know there's one upcoming. And that's for another group of patients that's extremely hard to treat, those patients who have familial chylomicronemia syndrome or severe hypertriglyceridemia, I should say. So my understanding is if a patient has a knockout mutation of lipoprotein lipase, and as you already pointed out, ANTPTL3 suppresses lipoprotein lipase, but removing it in those patients that have a true knockout mutation in both alleles doesn't really do much. But for the many others, probably the majority of people who we look at clinically and say they have kind of microanemia syndrome and who may have a different mutation or no identifiable mutation, but have recurrent pancreatitis, severe hypertriglyceridemia. It seems like at least some of the preliminary data look like this drug might hold promise. So with the understanding that you're going to be limited about talking about publication that's not yet published, what can you tell us about indications for severe refractory hypertriglyceridemia? So Alan, in the public domain, there are uh, phase uh, one and some phase two uh, studies that show that anti-PLT3 inhibition, either with a human monoclonal antibody of inocumab or small interfering RNA, you know, lowers, uh, you know, triglycerides by 60 to 80% uh, dose-dependent uh, reduction. In uh, the study that we will present at the American College of Cardiology as a late breaker, we're evaluating the response of evanocumab in individuals who are genotype for their uh, triglyceride mutation. So who was the population that was studied? These are individuals with triglyceride levels over 1,000 at one point and greater than equal to 500 milligram at the time of their screening visit. They needed to have experienced acute pancreatitis, you know, at least once, and many individuals, of course, have recurrent pancreatitis. So in this uh, trial, the uh, patients were randomized to evanocumab versus uh, placebo administered intravenously, cohort one were individuals who were homozygous for loss of function variants in lipoprotein lipase or LPL-related uh, pathways. The second group were individuals who were heterozygous for these traits. It could be compound heterozygotes. And then individuals who had a mutation that wasn't clear, you know, based on uh, genotyping. So the study that we're going to present is an example of pharmacogenomics, you know, looking at the background genotype and looking at a dose response in those three different uh, cohorts. So uh, can you tell us when you're presenting that at ACC? What day for our audience who might want to watch that? I know ACC recently became totally virtual. I was actually very much looking forward to having coffee or a cocktail with you, but now <clears throat> now we're all going to be doing this uh, online. So let yes. us know when are you doing your presentation for those on the... So the late-breaking clinical trial uh, session is on Sunday, March 26, between 8 and 9.30 a.m., and I'm the last of the speakers in that uh, session. Okay, terrific. I would encourage everybody in the audience to listen to this. It's going to be a landmark study. We have some other agents for that group of patients that are in the midst of FDA evaluation, like uh, Valanisorcin, an anti-sense drug against APOC3. There are some challenges using that medication, even though we're excited about it. And as you know, there's going to be a newer Leica version that hopefully will allow lower doses and maybe less issues with thrombocytopenia and whatnot. But, you know, 
just based on your clinical experience, how do you think evanacumab is going to stack up for those patients? And is the cost going to be very expensive because it is a monoclonal antibody? Do you have any insight into that? So several questions. Um, number one, one of the advantages of evanacumab or inhibiting angioplt 3 pathway is that there's a reduction in apolipoprotein B100 as well as B48. So when we think about individuals who have severe hypertriglyceridemia and focusing on pancreatitis, we recognize that many individuals also have very high rates of coronary heart disease. You know, in other words, they could have a, you know, mixed hyperlipidemia that becomes severe, you know, because they have a background therapy that, you know, is increasing their triglycerides, they may be overweight, they may have diabetes, may have problems with alcohol. So the difference between APOC3 inhibition and angioplt 3 inhibition is the reduction in ApoB. So I think there's greater opportunity for cardiovascular event uh, reduction with ANGPLT3 inhibition. But you bring up, you know, the, an issue is that if you derepress lipoprotein lipase, but you have no lipoprotein lipase activity, is ANGPLT3 going to work? And I would just say that that's going to be uh, one of the aspects of the presentation at the American College of Cardiology. And through a pharmacogenomic approach, we would actually be able to guide therapy and decide when a patient would benefit more from an APOC3 inhibitor versus an ANGPLT3 inhibitor. Yeah, that's really interesting, Bob. All right, everything you say, as usual, is tweaking my interest. So uh, one comment that you made, which I hadn't really thought about, was the reduction in B48. So I didn't realize that. What is the mechanism of that? I Because B48 is predominantly made in the intestine. What would be the mechanism? And that would certainly be interesting in terms of reducing chylomicron formation. Right. So, you know, we would say that, you know, based on some published work that there's a, uh, uh, you know, a decrease in chylomicrons, a reduction in, uh, you know, ApoB48, a reduction in ApoC3 that's been shown in people with moderate hypertriglyceridemia in phase one studies. There's also reduction in you know, ApoB100 and the uh, decrease in uh, small and medium-sized VLDL particles, as well as reductions in LDL particles. So that's one of the uh, very intriguing aspects of ANGPLT3 inhibition, at least with a monoclonal antibody, is that you're getting reductions in chylomicrons and VLDL, reductions in ApoB48 and reductions in ApoB100. On the cellular level, though, uh, what, and uh, forgive me if I missed it, but what is the mechanism that lowers B48 production? Well, your angioplt 3 inhibits lipoprotein lipase. So you're at a genetic level, you know, and again, if you look at, uh, you know, a mouse model, the ADAM study in JLR, the activity of lipoprotein lipase, you know, increases. And so, you know, that's our understanding as to why you're getting reductions in chylomicrons as well as in some of the large VLDL particles. So Japan. it's not a reduction in, in production of ApoB48, it's increased clearance of B48-containing particles. Yes, that's uh, the understanding. Okay, that's fascinating. You know, just to be fair about, I don't want to malign uh, anti-APOC3 too much, some studies of patients who have knockout mutations in C3 also show reduction in cardiovascular events, right? So theoretically, we might, I don't know that those studies have been done other than observational data, but theoretically, APOC3 inhibition could reduce cardiovascular events. Yeah, so Alan, one of the um, unresolved questions with APOC3 really derives from the work of uh, Frank Sachs's group that APOC3 binds to LDL 
it creates a more anthrogenic particle. It also binds to, you know, HDL and, you know, has a results in a particle that's uh, less functional. So that may be where APOC3 is coming into play. I was just bringing up the context of APOB100. And if you look at the LDL cluster response in phase one and phase two studies, they are different um, in terms of AHPLT3, and they're also different, you know, in terms of uh, IV versus sub-Q, but they're also different when compared to APO, uh, you know, C3 inhibition. And so it may be that when we look at the individuals who are homozygous for loss of function mutations in LPL, for some reason, APOC3 inhibition works, but it may be that there are other options in individuals who have, you know, a mixed disorder chylomicronemia or an uncategorized chylomicronemia where you're getting reductions in ApoB100, which we would all agree is a very robust, uh, you know, predictor of atherosclerotic cardiovascular events. And therein lies a lot of the complexity with some of these new pathways, but certainly isn't it interesting, intriguing, and we have to be happy that our patients now have some options or will have some options to uh, reduce uh, their uh, burden of pancreatitis and also uh, cardiovascular events. Yeah, fascinating. I, I agree. You know, I, ha- I've listened to arguments at meetings as I was trying to learn, you know, when I was teaching the master's course on genetics, how does ApoC3 inhibition work in a patient who has no functioning lipoprotein lipase? It, and, you know, the argument was Virgil Brown had done a lot of work showing that C3 not only suppresses lipoprotein lipase, but it suppresses hepatic lipase. So he felt strongly that by removing C3, even though in general chylomicrons have a pretty weak affinity for hepatic lipase, but by removing inhibition and increasing activity of hepatic lipase, that may be metabolizing some chylomicrons which otherwise you wouldn't have happen. And that's one of the reasons you don't see VLDL and chylomicronemias because hepatic lipase has such a, a good affinity for VLDL, even in the absence of lipoprotein lipase. But others have argued that's not the mechanism. The mechanism is increasing these other receptors on the liver that pick up chylomicron particles independent of uh, LDL receptors. So it's an ongoing debate, but it is fascinating. And the Science is not boring. I want to end with something that, you know, you're a scientist. So if you have no comment on this, I would understand, but I struggle with it, which is that, you know, avanacumab now has been released as an orphan drug for an orphan disease. Very rare patients that have homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. And because there's, you know, a very limited number of patients, the price of the medication is going to be quite high. And I realize we never know really what the price is until we see what the patient has to pay for the drug, but that's going to be a dilemma. And, and what I was thinking about is, let's just say it is very effective for those patients with severe hypertriglyceridemia, because even though true lipoprotein lipase knockout patients are, are rare, there's a broader group yes. that has you know, multiple SNPs that make them look clinically like chylomicronemia syndrome, maybe more than half of these patients that we think have chylomicronemia. So the number of patients that might benefit from the drug are actually quite quite a few compared to homozygous FH. How do you think they're going to deal with the dilemma of pricing for an orphan drug for homozygous FH and possibly having a larger number of patients that would normally be a lower-priced drug for people with severe hypertriglyceridemia? So that was a mouthful. I apologize for that, but I'm curious your thoughts. Well, you know, the uh, 
the cost structure is uh, not something that I have any impact on as an investigator. You know, this uh, therapy right now is approved for intravenous use. And there are certain costs with intravenous therapy, even every four weeks. And those are going to be uh, the infusion team, uh, you know, nursing for the one hour of observation, the cost of the medication. But uh, when you think about the very high risk of these homozygous FH patients who um, had average LDL cholesterol levels of 255 to 262 in the uh, RAL study, you know, I think that it's, uh, you know, worthwhile and one has to compare those costs against LDL apheresis and the availability of LDL apheresis and the time of LDL apheresis versus uh, one hour, you know, per month with evanocumab therapy, the tolerability with lomidopide as an example. But there are some people that just need all of those, uh, you know, therapies, uh, you know, together. So the broader population are those with refractory hypercholesterolemia that we reported on in December in the New England Journal of Medicine. And those were individuals who were on maximum tolerated stands, plus or minus azetamide, and all were on a PCSK9 inhibitor. And that uh, study of 272 individuals showed, again, reductions of LDL cholesterol of 50%. In that study, we compared intravenous therapy versus subcutaneous therapy. And it turns out that every week subcutaneous therapy was as effective as once monthly intravenous therapy. So with all these new biologics, there's been an evolution in terms of drug delivery. And if we can move the um, medication from intravenous to subcutaneous, that's going to decrease the costs and make it much easier for our patients. So, you know, it's uh, an issue that the sponsors working with, um, you know, the FDA to try and solve who constitutes a patient with refractory hypercholesterolemia. I, th I think certainly individuals on max tolerated stands as enomib and a PCSK9 who have high LDL cholesterol levels and cardiovascular disease would be considered high risk and refractory to what we have available to us. You bring up the- Like a severe heterozygote, for example. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And then of course you bring up the issue of uh, the patients with chylomicronemia who have been hospitalized for pancreatitis. Well, there's certainly a lot of costs when people end up uh, in the hospital for acute pancreatitis and, you know, maybe $7,000 per hospital stay, but you know, there's certain individuals that are there for months and they're, uh, you know, in the intensive care unit on a ventilator um, who have hemorrhagic uh, pancreatitis or may have a pseudocyst that ruptures. And we have to take that into account. And that's, I think, how medications are often prescribed based on uh, the cost of not doing something versus the cost of, you know, treatment. But you know, as somebody who's been involved in these uh, trials, I can say that the therapies are very effective and I'm looking forward to the options and that hopefully the costs will be uh, reasonable and not result in an obstacle for our patients to receive these new treatments. I appreciate that very much, Bob. I feel the same way. I think it'll be interesting and up to the manufacturer if they get a broadened amount of patients where the drug might be indicated, uh, then it will be easier for them to think about what they're going to do cost-wise. So it'll be fun to watch, but it is definitely exciting to have therapy for people that otherwise don't have therapy. So I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Robert Rosenson, for his insights. Bob, it's always a pleasure to learn from you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Alan, and it's uh, great working with you.